1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the daughter, uh, the daughter comes in and says to the dad, hey dad, I'm going out for the evening. And the dad tosses the daughter the keys and says, I'll see you when you get back. Is he a smart man in that moment or not? Of course, the answer is it depends. If his daughter's just turned 12, never driven a car before, we would think of him at the height of foolishness. If his daughter was newly minted, a newly minted driver, we would expect a whole lot more rules placed around that, and he would have a lot more knowledge about where she's going and who she's with and all the rules that she's going to be under. But there would come a point somewhere in her development, Lily, this is about when you're 25 or so, um, <laughs> that you would be able to say, yes, I'm taking the old man's cars out, car out for the evening, and he doesn't even know where I'm going to be. And he's going to trust me enough to drive that thing. Um, well, when you open up the issue of the offices of the church, um, it, it feels a little bit, as you dig into it, kind of like that scenario. Because what you're going to find is that that relationship between father and daughter in that moment is a statement about the nature of their relationship. And whether you deem that interaction wise or foolish will depend on what you think about the nature of that relationship. The church offices, and I'll use that phrase a lot when we think about deacons and elders, I think that's the best term to use. Think about the offices of the church, and I'll explain that a little bit later. It forces us to think about how God relates to his church. And in the course of it, it will surprise us, I think, along the way, what he's done and how he is interacting with us as New Testament Christians. But when you get into this issue, and I, as we enter this season, we're entering a season where we're appointing new officers, new deacons, and new elders. It's supposed to be a really positive season, and we've had a lot of good talk about this to be a positive thing. It's hopeful. We're looking to the future. The reality is it's often not, and, and, and a lot of times as I've gone through this study and got ready for this, I've thought about a lot of folks that are in my mind that have been wounded because of these seasons in their church's life. They've been wounded through the process of appointing leaders, appointing elders, appointing deacons, appointing officers. They have been wounded by being an officer of the church, by serving as a deacon or serving as an elder. And there are folks in my own family that I can't even talk about the subject with because there's too many sore spots in their own journey. Um, and so my concern as we go into this is really more of a kind of a pastoral concern. I want to make sure we get a sense and remember about who we are and what we're about as we go through this, because we can lose sight of it real quickly. And so when we, we start talking about, this week we're going to talk about deacons, and, and, and I'll get to more explanation of that later. I don't really want to assume more than I should about what do we understand about these, these, these labels, deacons and elders, but I just want to think for a minute about what we're here for. What, why are we here as a church? Why do we exist? 
And, and we've got to remember that, that there are these big rocks of our identity as a church that we have to fill in first before we start talking about the pebbles and the sand and when we get into the details of the offices of the church. The big rocks go in first. And the first big rock I'd, I'd point you to is Matthew 28. And if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in the New Testament. I'm going to move through about four or five texts today. Um, Matthew 28 is as good a statement as you will find in Scripture about the vision for what the church is to be about. Why are we here this morning? We're here because of this, where Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The operative phrase there is make disciples. That controls everything in that whole section. That's what we're about. The church exists to call and nurture disciples of Christ. That's what we're about. That's the mission. That's the vision of the church. Why do we exist? Why does a local church exist? A local church exists to call and nurture disciples. And I use that term nurture deliberately because there's two aspects of making disciples. There is the actual calling. That picture of baptizing them is a picture of conversion. It is calling people to faith. It is speaking to those who do not know who Jesus Christ is and saying that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe and he is to be Lord of your life. And it is the surrender of, in faith that we surrender our lives to him that is the first picture of becoming disciples. That picture of our baptism, of our conversion to Christ, is the beginning of our journey. But it doesn't end there. Verse 20, it is a picture that he is, we are to teach them. That the essence of nurturing, growing disciples is teaching each other to observe what Jesus has commanded us. To learn to be followers. So we, call, we follow the call, we become Christians, but we are also then learning each and every day of our lives what it is to follow Christ as his followers, as disciples. He calls us, the church exists, to call and nurture disciples of Christ. Flash forward to Acts chapter 1. What does that look like in the life of a local church, in the life of a community? Well, in Acts 1 and 2, you get the creation of the church. Seems a relevant place to kind of discover what it's like to be the church. And in Acts 1 9, or Acts, I'm sorry, 1 8, it says this Jesus says one of his, his last words on earth, important words, right? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, what he's describing there, he's actually telling them, and as kind of a prophecy, telling them everything they're getting ready to do in the rest of the book of Acts. Because everything that happens in the book of Acts is that the Spirit comes upon a people, and with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowering these people, they are his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The mission of God's people spreads out, but that mission happens because God calls a Spirit-empowered community to carry out that mission. If that mission is to be accomplished, it will only be because the Spirit of God dwells upon a people. And when I say that it dwells upon a people, when he says it dwells upon a people in Acts 1.9, or at 1.8, he's not talking about just a few people. Flip over to Acts 2, next page. When Peter 
preaches at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descends as with and reveals itself as, as tongues of fire upon the followers of Jesus, and they then begin to miraculously speak in the tongues of all of these nations that are gathered there at this at the temple. And as they speak, they are hearing their own language, and they think it's crazy. In fact, some of them are accusing of being drunk because there's such insanity going on here in the morning. And so Peter rises up to preach this sermon here at Pentecost to explain to them what's happening. The beginning of that sermon is him telling them that what is happening before you is not just crazy. No, we're not drunk. That's verse 15. But he actually tells them that what's happening is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. And what is that prophecy? It comes from Joel, and it says this in verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about what in the world he's talking about when the the fact that all these people are now prophesying. But what it is anticipating, as Peter explains as he goes on, is that the Spirit of God has now come upon a people through Jesus Christ, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is upon a people, and it is all of these people that are now empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has been poured out on all of them. And you notice all of these categories in this hierarchical, patriarchal culture where there's this sense of worth based on are you male or female, are you Jew or Gentile, are you young or old, old being the more preferred one, are you slave or free, there's this deep hierarchy and structure. But in the Joel prophecy, all of that is washed away. The Spirit of God is poured out on all of them, male and female, young and old, male and fe- uh, the male servants, the female servants, sla- slave or free. And guess what? About the middle of Acts, it becomes clear that, that the Spirit of God is also poured out on Jew and Gentile. Every category, every distinction that divides people in that time is being eradicated because the Spirit of God is called upon this people. The church has been called and endowed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to carry out the mission of God. That calling, that empowerment by the Spirit is not on a chosen few. It is on every person. That's one of those big rocks that we've got to put in place. When we start talking about the offices of the church, what we are not looking for is those handful of people in our midst on whom the Spirit of God rests. The Spirit of God rests on every believer in this room. And if we miss that, we're going to miss the calling that is on us as the church, as God's people. The Spirit of God is working and empowering the ministry of every single believer in this church. Then you get to the little rocks, the offices of the church. Now, when we talk about the offices, there are two offices described in, the, in Scripture, there's deacons and there are elders. And I went back and forth which way to start. And I decided to start with deacons. And I'm not sure I'm right, but it could go either way. 
and I think some of you, if you don't like what I say about deacons, you might like better what I say about elders, and if you don't like what I say, or if, either way, I'm not going to make everybody happy. I'm probably not going to make anybody happy by the time we're done at it, but I really just want to see what Scripture says about it, because it gets hard. And deacons actually poses a really hard challenge for us. In some ways, deacons, the, the, the picture of deacon in Scripture is harder for us than elders, and I'll explain why here in a few minutes. But I'm, I, I say here, I keep referring to offices. The reason why I'm referring to them as offices is because we often refer to them as leaders. And I'll slip now and then. I've already done it once this sermon, but I'll slip and call them leaders. But I think the term leader carries non-biblical baggage. We mean something when we say leaders that's borrowed more from modern corporate America than is borrowed from Scripture. And I'm trying to use the term offices because it's a more historical, theological term for these two positions. And it doesn't carry that baggage of the term leader. Um, I'm, in what way are they leaders? In some ways they are, in some ways they're not. But that's another discussion. But that's why I'm trying to refer to that term of office. But here's the challenge. Okay, we've got these two offices. We're going to build a church. We're going to do it faithfully. We want to listen to Scripture. And we've got these two offices that are described, deacons and elders. So, all right, we're going to make deacons and elders. And then we go to deacons. And the first thing I want to know, if, I'm calling, if somebody's calling me up and saying, hey, I want you to do this job, the first thing I want to say is, okay, what am I supposed to do? And here's our first problem. Because you say, okay, we're going to figure out the deacon thing. We're going to figure out what deacons do. And we're going to open up the Scriptures and mine it, Old and New Testament. And we're going to search widely to find out what the job description is for deacons, and what we get is nothing. There is no job description for the office of deacon in the Bible. It does not exist. Does that blow you away? It blows me away. But that's telling us something. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that there are two mistakes that we make commonly when we try to understand the nature of the offices in the church, the office of deacon, the office of elder. This is where we make the first mistake. The first mistake is we just don't know, we stumble over the silence of Scripture. Now, for those that don't know the history of Churches of Christ, I'm not going to give you too much history here, but, but you know, basically the short of it is the Churches of Christ have been around for a little over 200 years. We were founded kind of in the early 1800s, and there are a couple real key figures, Alexander Campbell, Thomas Campbell, uh, Alexander's dad, Barton Stone, but they, they got together, though they were very different people with very different theologies on so many different points, one of the things that united them was this phrase that I put up there from Thomas Campbell. We're, we're going to speak where the Bible speaks. We're going to be silent where the Bible's silent. Has anybody ever heard that? I mean, I got that thing hammered into me as a kid. The problem is, it's not true. Too often, we have not been silent where the Bible's silent. We've been shouting where the Bible is silent. We shout over a lot of things that the Bible says nothing about. And we come here to the deacon thing, and we've got Scripture being silent. So what do you do with the silence of Scripture? Now we're back to that thing about dad and daughter and the keys to the car. Three suggestions to you. I think three principles for how we navigate the silence of Scripture. First, you should expect diversity from faithful Christians. The fact that you disagree with me on some of these conclusions doesn't mean that you're not a real believer. You should expect to find diversity where Scripture is silent because we're navigating things where Scripture's not giving us much of a guide. So, one, give some grace to each other. Second, on matters of church structure, silence means freedom. 
Now, that's more controversial, and I get that. And I'm, I'm confining this discussion to matters of this church structure and church offices because, frankly, I think when you get to matters of Christian ethics, a lot of times you are drawing analogies. Um, and so it's the, the discussion of the silence of Scripture is not quite the same. But for church structure, silence means freedom. Now, how do you get there? It's one simple argument for me that's very persuasive, that, that there is no book of Leviticus in the New Testament. Have you read the book of Leviticus lately? God knows how to design a church. He knows how to design a church building. He can tell you exactly how big it's going to be and what kind of fabric you're going to use on the tents. And oh, when you get a few, a few hundred pages later, you get to the temple, he'll tell you exactly what it's going to be made out of. He can tell you every single dimension of every piece of that church structure. If we had Leviticus, we would never have had a, church, a fight in a church over paint color because God could have told us exactly what color it's supposed to be painted. And even the way the offices are described, you want to know what a priest does? You go to Leviticus. You've got lots of descriptions on every aspect of the priest's job. The priest's job. We know that job description back and forth. They know all the things they're supposed to be doing because it's described. God knows how to write Leviticus. And when he got to the New Testament, he didn't write one. He didn't write a moment where he says, okay, now that we're organizing the New Testament church, it's going to look this way. Your buildings are going to look like this, and they're going to run this way. And when you run a worship service, guess what? There's no worship service described in the New Testament either. We're going to have a worship service that looks like this. You're going to have this number of songs, you're going to have this number of prayers, and when the guy prays, he's going to pray this way, and you're going to use this microphone and not this microphone. All of those details could have been described, and God leaves all of them out. Why? Why doesn't he tell us? Because... Dad has tossed us the keys to the car. And where Scripture gives freedom, the most important tool that we have is wisdom. Freedom equals wisdom. That's, the, I think, the most important link to, to get in our heads when we think about areas of freedom in Scripture. When I say the word freedom, the teenager in me wants to say, well, I've got freedom, that means I get to do whatever I want. No, that's a fool's errand. You get the keys to your dad's car and you go out and you do whatever you want. You're going to wreck the car, you're going to get a ticket, you're going to have all sorts of things, all these shenanigans are going to happen and you're going to come back and say, well, you're not driving that thing again. Um, there's, but when you get are entrusted with this freedom, you use it responsibly, you use it wisely. God has created a church that's going to go to all people's it's going to be composed of people from all nations, moving through all these cultures and all these times. There's just a lot of things about church structure and worship and worship styles and that it's just going to look different from one generation to the next and from one culture to the next. And as it moves through time, there's going to be a lot of differences. And those things, God is setting up his church so that it will change and it will adapt to these uh, different cultures and different times and different needs of particular communities. And what he says is, if you're going to do this, use wisdom. Wisdom is our most important tool where Scripture gives us freedom. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent. And give grace and practice wisdom where the Bible is silent. So what do deacons do? Well, we don't know. What did they do? We've got a few things we can say about it. Look at Acts 6. Acts 6 is often seen as the forerunner of the deacon that is described later in the New Testament. In Acts 6, 
you know, it's early on in the church's ministry, the apostles, there's this, all this growth, there's all this, this new church, thousands of people have come and have been baptized, and now they're trying to live well together. Even though there's already diversity in the church, there's these Jews, and then there's these Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews, and there's ethnic problems because they don't speak the same language we do, and we don't really trust them because they're not like us. But there's this problem in the opening verses of chapter 6 where these, um, the Hellenists and the Hebrews are fighting with each other because they're saying that the widows, their widows, are being neglected in this daily distribution of food. And so what's happening here is the widows are some of the neediest people and most neglected people in, those, in that culture, in those cultures of the time, in both the Jewish culture and in the Gentile culture. The widows need to be served by the church. The church is loving and caring for the neediest people in the church. That's the widows here. There's some that are being neglected. There's all this rivalry and dissension. And so, verse 2, the 12 apostles summon all of their disciples and said, hey, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. There's that W word. We don't like that W word. Full of the spirit, full of wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what they do is they appoint these seven servants. And that word servant, anytime you see it, is also the other word for that is deacon. Um, but they appoint these seven to do this task, the specific task of daily distributing the food to the people in the church that are in need so that the apostles are free then to do their ministry, which is a ministry first of prayer and of the ministry of the word preaching and teaching, fulfilling that primary calling of going and making disciples. So what is, what, how does this picture of something of what the deacons were? Well, one, they're serving and doing specific tasks. So a deacon here in Acts 6, if this is the model for what deacons become, the deacon is being called to do specific tasks that need to be done, and the specific tasks they're being called to do is, uh, is to do so so they can free up the apostles, and eventually, I think, in the church, the elders, to do their ministry. So I can take this off your shoulder so that you don't have to do it, this stuff that would otherwise overwhelm you. Now, so that's a, think about a lot of modern uh, iterations of that. That's as, you know, the... The, the common one is the building. You think that's a little bit of a chore to try to keep this thing running and you know, built up? Just ask Bob. He can tell you a few stories of all the quirks in this thing. But, but one, this is a picture of ministry that happens in quiet service. The defin- that's why I say I think that the word leader related to deacon is a misleading one. It's not about the deacon being in charge of a bunch of people. It's about the deacon serving by doing tasks that need to be done quiet service. Um, So it's defined in quiet service. In fact, the prototypical deacon work in Acts 6, any of you that have ever either organized or actually done the work of preparing and delivering meals to folks that just came home from the hospital or folks that just had a baby or folks that just had a death in the family, that's Acts 6 work. That's the work of these kind of forerunners of the deacons, preparing the meals serving people in their times of needs. The other thing I'd notice about that, notice that they appointed seven people to do one job. 
We often do the opposite. <laughs> we have one person that we assign doing seven jobs. Um, there's some wisdom here that you think about a team of people. Imagine for, as we appoint deacons, imagine what if you had a team of seven people tasked with the building instead of one person that's going to be burned out every year? What if you had seven people assigned to the task? What if there were a team of deacons assigned to the task of keeping that sound system from screeching? That's a full-time job. Just ask John. He's doing it every week. It's hard. What if you had a team of people that are serving in those tasks? There's a lot of work around here that you could see. It, 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 it reflects this picture of people quietly serving in specific tasks and ministry to free up others to do the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. That's what they did there in Acts 6. And then you get to who should be a deacon. And, and then you go to 1 Timothy. And this is usually where people start. I wanted to wind up here instead of starting here because 1 Timothy 3 uh, is, is really the only description of any length that we have of deacons in the Bible. That's it. This is all we've got. So what do they do? Well, when you, when you get to this, first off, I want you to see that it is character that is the ultimate measure of who should be a deacon. In fact, I would say it more specifically. I would say it is spiritual character that is the ultimate measure of who should be a deacon. And you're going to see a similar thing with some little differences next week when we look at elders. Character drives this section. Look through 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, and find one description that describes a person being talented at a particular area. Find somebody that's good with their hands. Find somebody that's really good at accounting so they can keep this budget together. It doesn't say anything about that. What it talks about is spiritual character. Now here, before I go through the list, I want to suggest here's the second mistake that we make. That first mistake is we don't know what to do with Scripture silence. But as we open up 1 Timothy, the other mistake that we make is that we try to read letters as law instead of reading them as letters. Genre matters when you're interpreting Scripture. You read a poem you read that differently than when you're reading the tax code. They just read differently. And you're going to interpret them differently. Um, you know, if, if, the, if the tax code says something about your love being like a red rose, that's going to confuse the auditor very differently than when the poet says it. You read genre in literature differently. That's true in all of life. You read any kind of book. You're paying attention to, what am I reading here? Is this a comedy? Is this a tragedy? Is this satire? Is it, what is this? Most of the New Testament is letters. And what that means is these are letters written by somebody to somebody about something. Pretty simple, right? So when we read these letters, we are trying first to understand what they're writing to them about and what the situation is. And what that will mean in something like 1 Timothy 3 that he is presenting these qualifications of deacons as next week we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 3 and see these qualifications of elders. He is offering a guide, not a checklist. These are not comprehensive. He doesn't exhaust everything you can possibly imagine as being something that you would want to consider if you're going to appoint somebody to the office of deacon. He's giving this checklist. I like how one scholar says it. this list is authoritative, but it is not exhaustive. Because Paul is not writing this thinking about you and me. 
he's not writing this saying, well, you know, like, like a good um, lawmaker to say, I need to think exhaustively of every possible iteration as I'm going to write this code. And I'm going to try to think of all the ways that they can be tricked. And I'm going to try to get it all out there. I mean, if he did that, he could get, do it. But I mean, the qualifi- qualifications for deacon would be volumes long as he thinks of every possible thing. And if we had that kind of list, kind of a Leviticus kind of thing, if we say, well, should a deacon be this? We would go consult the code, and we get to that thing and say, yes or no. It should say it right there. We just follow the checklist. But that's not what we have. We have this orientation. Deacons should be like this. Um, and, and all of it hinges around this theme of character. Now, how do you see that here? Look at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, we'll talk about the elders piece because that's why he's saying likewise there in the same manner is another way that's translated. Must be dignified or respectable. That's the controlling picture. Deacons should be dignified people, should be respectable people, the kind of people you say, I trust that person. That's that kind of picture. And when he says that, that this, is, this reads like wisdom literature because he says that a deacon must be dignified. Um, it's, um, we look at their life and then the, it means they're, they're not like this. So he defines dignified by suggesting contrast. Well, a person is not dignified if they're double-tongued, if they say one thing here and say another thing there, if they're a liar, I can't trust them. So they're not double-tongued. They're not addicted to much wine, so they're not a drunkard, so I can trust them because they're going to say what they say, and there's this integrity in their lives because of how they're handling here. This is a culture steeped in a lot of problems of alcoholism, um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a fresh, vital issue. Uh, they're, they're not greedy for dishonest gains, so I can look at their life and the way they conduct their business and their affairs and the way they manage the material goods and say this is not a, a greedy person. All of that is a contrast, sharpening, defining that term dignified or respectable, depending on how your translation does, translates it. But all of that is controlling this idea that that's the kind of person you want. And he's thinking of examples that are relevant to the, the church or churches that Timothy is ministering to here. He's speaking, thinking of their situation and their issues. So it's a respectable person. This is a person of, this person of character. Then verse 9 says something interesting. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now that looks different than the way the elders are described. We'll talk about them next week. The elders, just in short though, there's a picture of the elder being having a, um, some maturity in the faith. That's not this description here. This is a person that is, I would, I would say it's a person who is full-throated in their conviction. The person that says, I'm kind of hinging on this. I don't, sometimes I believe, sometimes I don't. I'm really wrestling with this. And you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a growth process, a maturing process in our faith, and some folks are kind of a little shaky in their faith. That's not a deacon. The deacon is the person that says, yes, I believe. They've got a commitment. They have a conviction. But that's not to say that they have this years of maturity. The deacon here in verse 9 is immediately pictured as someone that might be quite a bit younger than an elder. Um, even the term elder suggests something to us. Again, more of that coming next week. But they're committed in their faith. And then verse 10, they're, they're tested. They're, they're known to the congregation. Let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That's a pretty high mark. That was actually the description of Jacob in, the, in Genesis. But he's, this, the deacon is somebody who is blameless. Again, who has a person of character that they're respectable. And we respect them. 
That's, that's the this, this sense of character that emerges here. Then it gets tricky. I'm going to skip over verse 11 for a few minutes. Then you go to verse 12. Because verse 12, we come back to this picture of deacons here, and then he starts talking about things that we commonly misunderstand as a kind of checklist. Well, let de- deacons each be, and your translations, I think, mislead us here. The literal translation, we let e- deacons each be um, the man of one woman, or a one-woman man. Many of your translations, including the ESV here, though it footnotes it separately, says the husband of one wife. Now, you read that phrase, husband of one wife, there's all sorts of misinterpretation that comes up. In our tradition and kind of American tradition, it's been one, we use that to exclude single people who've never been married. All right, that's one. That's not what Paul's talking about. You go look at 1 Corinthians 7, and you see Paul having this very high view of the calling of singleness as a calling into ministry. You also, um, just kind of the absurd thing, you, you, it it's bog, would boggle my mind that Paul is here um, arguably disqualifying himself and Timothy, who's likely single at this point, and, oh, Jesus Christ himself. Um, if our standard of leadership in the church, or if our standard of the offices of the church are so high that Jesus Christ himself cannot qualify, we're probably misinterpreting the scripture. Some advice on that. But that, that's been used to, to exclude um, men who've never been married. It's been used to exclude um, uh, men who have, whose wife dies. I talked to one person in the course of this study that recounted the story of this guy who lost his wife and his daughter in this tragic accident. He was a deacon at the church. He shows up after this period of grieving a few weeks in, and the very first thing he's told when he walks into the church, he's informed by the church that he needs to resign as a deacon because he's no longer the husband of one wife. Despite the pastoral cruelty in all of that, it's just not making sense of this context. It is reading this as checklist, as law, not as letter. Um, go to the next piece. I'm going to talk about them together, but this idea of managing their children and their own households well, that's a phrase of it's been used to exclude a person who only has one child um, because it doesn't, say, it doesn't say child, it says children. It's been used to exclude the uh, person once their kids outgrow the house. Once they leave the home, they're no longer qualified. So, you know, the, the day that you sign that tax return and you're down to just one dependent, no longer qualified to be a deacon. So, you know, it's a lot of these, they're not the same churches, but these are practices that I've encountered through the years. And if it feels, any of them feel a little absurd to you, they should, because they're reading these, misreading these about what they're intending. What is he talking about? Well, first, that one woman man. Well, there's at least two possibilities that he's talking about. One, some say he's, the old view is that he's talking about the problem of polygamy. Now, that may happen. There was some of that, but it was, pretty, um, it was pretty verboten in the church. You just didn't do that at this point. It seems unlikely to me. Uh, the more likely version is that there was a problem of a lot of infidelity among the Gentiles especially. Infidelity was a huge problem in the Roman culture. Uh, a, a married man had no cultural obligation to practice any degree of fidelity to his wife. The wife did, but the man did not. Um, there was a very permissive culture. And what he's saying there, this phrase, one woman man, only occurs in Paul. It's as if he's coined this phrase that he uses several times. He even in later in Timothy, he talks about a, a, a one man woman. Uh, but this idea of this phrase that he's using in his preaching and teaching to, descri- to describe fidelity. 
He's simply saying these are people, character being the operative thing. The deacon is someone who practices fidelity in their marital relationships. They manage their children in their own household. It's not about excluding. There's no sense that he's got this bone to pick with singles or bone to pick with you know, parents of one child or bone to pick with parents whose kids aren't in the home anymore, but that people are known through their key relationships. They're known. You kind of understand the character of a person by how, you know, if it's a dad, you understand the character by how they treat their, their, their kids. And a husband, you know them by how they treat their wives. And a wife, you know them by how they treat their husband. You're going to know something of their character that emerges in all of this network of relationships. And he's navigating them, getting them to think about character being at the forefront of the kind of people that they should be calling into these roles. Incidentally, the big operative problem in 1 Timothy was false teaching that's going on in the church that's being driven because of personalities that are being elevated who simply don't have the character to be in the positions they're in in the church. He's fighting this, this cause of character. And then the last thing he says there is that there's this, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That last phrase seems very directed at the way that the office of deacon is representing the church to the community. Just as in Acts 6, you go back and look at that, when they are serving this daily distribution of food, these seven servants that are serving there, the church actually grows as a response to that. People outside the church see that the, the way that the church loves each other, and they're drawn to the gospel because of it. Spiritual character matters. Then there's verse 11, and there's your big controversial point. So verse 11, what is it? What's going on here? Because then he talks about the women. And it could be one of two things. The, the, in the Greek, the, the phrase is simply the women. It can mean one of two different groups he's talking about. Either he's talking about their wives. Many of your translations will translate it that way. What they're saying there is, well, it says the women, but it can mean their wives because you can imply a possessive pronoun because of the context. And so there's some kind of description of the wives of these deacons that he needs to spell out too. So you look at these deacons, these men, and then you also look at the, the character of these wives. The other interpretation is that it is the women, meaning that he is spelling out women deacons as well as men deacons. So for the women who are serving as deacons, this is what they need to look like. Here are the things to be thinking about, the character requirements. Either one leads you to this place of character as being what they're talking about. They must be dignified, that same word, respectable, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. There's this picture of who they are. Now, that's been debated for a long time. The earlier view, the older view, interestingly enough, is um, the women. It's referring to deacons, women deacons. That's true from, uh, we have evidence as early as about 100. So depending on how you date Revelation, that could be within 10 years of the end of the New Testament, that we have examples of women serving as deacons. Um, and what they're doing there in the first, in the first in early second century is what we would often call women's ministry. They're serving the women of the church. They're, they're actually helping baptismal candidates. They're, there's a teaching ministry. There's a lot of different things. But in a heavily patriarchal society, there were women deacons in the early centuries of the church. It's also interesting that that is the older view in churches of Christ. This is one that surprised me in my own study, that... Um, 
I always knew in the 1800s there was the practice of deaconesses or women deacons in the churches of Christ in America, uh, but I found a quote from the Millennial Harbinger in 1848, which is, Millennial Harbinger was the kind of the key journal of the churches of Christ at the time, that they said that one of the marks, the identifying marks of the church of Christ um, was the ordination of deacons and deaconesses. And it is largely from every single significant leader that I knew of, I could find quotes in the 1800s where they would say, women deacons. What happened? You put Alexander Campbell in the 1800s, he's on this side. By 1900, you got a new guy named David Lipscomb, who ironically, given the way actually Lipscomb University's changed, uh, become an advocate for increasing women in these roles now, but David Lipscomb was the one that really led the charge to get to end the practice of women deacons. And throughout the early 20th century, 1900s, teens, 20s, 30s, you saw this slow practice change where there were no longer women deacons in the churches of Christ. So we've kind of gone through three phases in our own movement. Early phase, it was women deacons. The second phase in the early 20th century, late to late 20th century, there were no women deacons. And now from the 1990s, a lot of churches, frankly, just got tired of fighting over it and got rid of the deacons altogether. In fact, this is the church, first church that I've preached at where we've actually had functional deacons. So it's, it's, uh, we've gone through these phases. So one, again, practice grace with one another, learn how to agree to disagree, learn how to get in there, but realize that this argument ultimately is not going to hinge on how you read this text. One of the most surprising things you may find if you study this issue is how many theologians, conservative theologians, Bible-believing theologians will say, hey, I really think it says women deacons, and so I think we should have women deacons. We're going to follow the pattern. But then you'll also find folks that say, you know, I don't think it says women deacons. I think it says their wives. Uh, so I don't think it's actually modeling for us, and yet I still think women can be deacons. Well, why would they say that? Well, it's back to the issue of silence. For my reading of it, this is likely one of two examples of women serving in the role of deacon. I think what's happening here is that he's describing this big category of deacons in verse 8, 8 through 10. And I guess I should say here that we, we talk about deaconess. There is no word deaconess in the Greek. Deacon can be male or female. So when he says that in verse 8, we, when you hear deacon, it doesn't automatically mean it's, it's men. It could be men and women. So it's this category of deacons, and then there is a subset of the deacons that are the women deacons that need some special spell out for their issues. Verse 11, here's the kind of character I want in the women that are serving these roles. Verse 12, here's the kind of character I want in the men that are serving in these roles. I think that's how the logic of the passage works. And if that's true, it's one of two examples. The other example is Romans 16. You've got a reference to Phoebe, who's described as a servant of the church or a deacon of the church. I think both of those are very solid examples that we're following the pattern of Scripture if we have women serving as deacons. But if that's wrong, if you disagree with that, if you say, well, I don't think that's there, then the problem you've got is if it's not speaking about women as deacons, but speaking about deacons' wives, which is odd because it means there's no requirements for the elders' wives. There's just requirements for the deacons' wives. It's one of the strongest arguments against the, this reading. But if that's your reading, you've got no example. What you have is Scripture being silent on the issue of whether women can serve as deacons. It simply says nothing about it if that's your reading of this passage. And if Scripture is silent... Where there is silence, there's freedom. And where there's freedom, 
we have to use wisdom. And that's where you wind up with, that you either have this example of women serving as deacons, or you've got silence on the issue, and you've got to use your head. So what do you do? Well, get the big picture in place. One, biblically, if this reading of 1 Timothy is correct, the deacon, as described, is a picture of a disciple that we can all strive for. One of the things that, com- that I find so compelling about the study of deacons, as little information as we have about them in the New Testament, is how related they are to that Matthew 28 kind of vision of what a disciple is. A deacon here is a believer who is fully committed to the faith and shows the evidence of the work of the Spirit, of spiritual character as they serve the church. That's a deacon. And that's something that we can all strive for, that no one in this reading is ever permanently disqualified from being a deacon. It's not some kind of task or checklist that you've got to attain. It's like, well, I can serve a deacon if only I were a man, and I can serve as a deacon only if I could get a wife, and I could serve as a deacon only if I could keep the kids at the home for a long time, and all these kind of checklist kind of issues. No, nobody is permanently disqualified. It's something, really, that we can all strive for. Frankly, when we talk about elders next week, that's not the same there. Uh, it's going to be a little different. There are some that we're just not going to have the skill set to ever kind of anticipate that qualification. The second thing is that, that, that we have a large pool of candidates here at this church from whom a few are going to be chosen to fill a few particular needs. So one, the elders are going to exercise wisdom and as they decide who that audience is going to be, what that pool of candidates is. And so as much as I've given you my best reading of this text, I can assure you the elders aren't 100% in agreement with me on this. And the elders may come back and say, and I anticipate they will, saying, well, we're going to, for our judgment is, we're going to practice union in the church, and here's the pool of candidates we're going to draw from. Practice wisdom and practice grace with one another as we navigate decisions about what ultimately are secondary matters. These are pebble issues, not big rock issues. We've got to learn how to love one another and care for one another and join together in this mission of doing the work of making disciples of all nations. And where we restrict, if we're going to say you can't serve in this role, where we restrict, keep those big rocks of ministry and spiritual calling before you. Do your ministry. Do the tasks that are before you. Serve the church and advance the kingdom of God. Do this and do the calling that God has placed before you. Whether you hold the office or not, live like a deacon. Because that is the vision of discipleship that he has put before each and every one of us. Live like a deacon in all that you do. Let's pray. God, as we navigate hard texts, I pray for wisdom and clarity for each of us. Help us to think well. Help us to love one another well as we learn how to read your word. God, I pray that as we go into this season that you will unite the church, not because we all agree on interpretations of hard texts, but because we love one another through the love that comes only through your spirit at work in each of us through the gracious ministry of Jesus Christ.